0: Indiana Bible College is committed to training tomorrow's apostolic ministers today, and this is the Indiana Bible College podcast. Today on the podcast, we have a sermon from chapel from our academic dean, Reverend Jennifer Mast. She's preaching a message titled, Wrestling with Judas. We're so grateful for the ministry of Sister Jennifer Mast. Let's get right to her sermon in IBC Chapel. I know Brother Henderson did an incredible job on Sunday. We, we had talked about John 21, and then he went to John chapter 13 and threw me for a complete and total loop, because I'm preaching from John 13 today. And then Brother Turner got up, and if I didn't feel confirmation already about what I was coming to preach today, um, you started preaching my sermon for me. So that's, that's a beautiful thing. That's an absolutely beautiful thing. So I know I'm in the will of God today. I come to you with a very deep burden on my heart that I uh, want to convey to the best of my ability with these lips of clay. So if you will, turn in your Bibles to 13, chapter 13 of John. We're gonna start with verse 21, and then we may double back into the beginning of the chapter a little later in the message. We see in verse 21, and I'm just gonna kind of skim through and pull out some of the, the primary portions here, that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. He said, verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples, looking looked one on another, doubting of whom he spoke. Everyone say doubting. We see that Peter, the one who is always bold, always the one to step up to the plate, and uh, got knocked down several times in that process, is a little less bold, probably because of what had happened earlier on in this chapter when Jesus kind of put him in his place. And he looks to John, and he says, find out who it is. Find out who it is who's the betrayer. And we find John asking that all-important question. And Jesus answered in verse 26, He it is to whom I shall give a sop. Then I have dipped it, when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered. Everybody say, after the sop. Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. Some thought that Judas had the bag and had gone to purchase uh, thanks for the feast, or perhaps to give to the poor. In verse 30, it says, He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. Say, it was night. You may be seated. Brother Brown, I cannot preach a message about one of the villains in Scripture without going back to early church and modern church. I had a penchant for for choosing some of the unique characters in history, uh, to write on. I remember I chose Bloody Mary for a biographical sketch, and I walked into my office, I think, in early church, and I was like, I don't know who to write on. And Brother Brown looked at me in deadpan. Well, you like those despicable characters? Write on Diocletian. So that's who I wrote on. And so anytime I I, I start to, to, to pull from some of these, what we would maybe call villains of scripture, I always kind of go back to that moment, because the truth is, Whether we're looking at the pages of history and those vast cast of characters that march across the stage, or whether we're looking at the people in Scripture, whether they be warriors or infidels, whether they be villains or heroes, I think that they are worth a second glance. You know, oftentimes we we idolize certain people in Scripture and we want to, to be David when he is victorious, but we find ourselves wrestling and trying to navigate the Psalms when David is questioning whether there is even a God that hears him. We want to be Moses at the parting of the Red Sea, stretching forth our rod across the water and watching the waters part miraculously, but sometimes we find ourselves maybe uh, hitting the rock when we're supposed to speak to it, or perhaps throwing our hands up in the air and saying, this is too heavy for me. These are your people, not my people, God. What am I to do? You know, we, we desire to be Elijah on the mountaintop, calling down the fire from heaven, but sometimes we find ourselves underneath the juniper tree, wrestling with what the call of God is wrestling with the weight of those things and, and uh, needing maybe a little bit of rest and some food. But I find that so oftentimes as we, we go through scripture, we, 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 we quickly categorize the villains as villains and we don't give them a second glance. But I think we owe it to ourselves to wrestle with Judas to wrestle with Saul, to wrestle with those that have fallen from grace, those that perhaps didn't measure up and weren't what they were supposed to be. Because only in the wrestling can we find those hidden pieces of pride. Only in the wrestling can we find those things that are unsubmitted and unsurrendered to God that, that perhaps need to be brought into alignment with God. You see, Judas' story is oftentimes taught and preached from start to finish with two epochal moments, the Last Supper and the Garden of Gethsemane. Some follow it through to its natural conclusion, the 30 pieces of silver being tossed back and him choosing death over repentance. But what of the days leading up? What of the moments? What of the hours? What of the days? What of the weeks? What of the three years that he had spent with Christ? Because you see, he was called. And when you're called, what did we just sing? You're never going to be the same. He was called. What does scripture say about him? He was a disciple chosen by the master. He was commissioned for ministry. We see this in Mark chapter 3, Matthew 10 and Mark 6. Not just commissioned for ministry, but he was ordained that he should preach, that he should have power to heal sickness and to cast out devils. He was baptizing converts. He was present when Jesus walked on the water. He was present when the water turned to wine. He was present when the loaves and fishes were multiplied. And yes, he was one distributing of the plenty. You see, he was an active member of ministry. Folks, I have a burden on my heart today because as I prepare for this message, my heart and my mind were flooded by so many that have gone before me. Men and women that I saw as mentors in ministry that are no longer walking in this truth. Peers that sat beside me on the pews of IBC who I would have told you that, that I would stake my life on the fact that they were going to go the distance. They could preach the wallpaper off the walls. They could sing the solos that moved a congregation to their knees and yet, yet, yet their life is nothing but a pile of rubble. Yet they made decisions that tore them from the heart of God. Folks, my friends, we must wrestle with Judas, the good and the bad. James and John are are fighting over who's going to sit on the right and sitting on the left of Jesus. Peter denied Christ. We fight Thomas who doubted him. We find in Luke 22 the the they the 12 disciples are arguing over who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom while Jesus is pouring out his heart and talking about his upcoming betrayal and death. Folks had Judas not chosen the end of the story that he chose. He wouldn't be the villain in the story. Peter could have just as been a just as easily been the villain, but he loved Christ. He had a relationship with Christ. Thomas could have just as been easy, easily have been the villain as could have James, John, or any of the others, but their story was different because their heart was different. So what went wrong with Judas? We can't excuse it and say it was just prophecy because yes, it was prophecy, but God did not take his free will. Jesus knew the beginning and the end, and he was prophesying as that which he knew Judas would do, the mistakes that he knew Judas would make. We can't write them off as a simple aberration with no connection to our own heart and soul because, my friends, in every generation, we wrestle with the spirit of Judas. In every generation, we wrestle with those things that are unsubmitted and that that hidden pride and those things that can remain so easily hidden from leadership, so easily hidden from peers, so easily hidden in life and ministry. So as says, if only it were so simple to classify— who is evil? If it were only evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and if it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them, but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? That's what we wrestle with because you see, we don't always know those things that are unsubmitted. What did Brother Turner just say? He said, I didn't know it was there until suddenly it rose up in me. That's why we have to live a life submitted to God. We can't be as Judas did and separate ourselves from relationship with the king of kings and lord of lords. We can't be as Judas was walking with him, preaching, teaching, baptizing, casting out the devils, and yet be separated from relationship and separated from the reality of who he is. So what happened? Satan didn't enter into Judas until verse 27. We know that he was already communing and listening to the voice of Judas before that. We see in verse 2 of chapter 13 that it had already been put in the heart of Judas, to betray Christ, but I would argue he was communing with Satan long before that. You don't get from point A to point Z that quickly. We look at it from the outside, and we're like, what happened? They backslid overnight. They were just preaching general conference, but folks, that's not the way it happens. I don't know if I'm going to preach or if I'm going to teach. All I know is I'm going to pour out my heart right now because I feel a heavy burden. I don't want any person sitting on these pews to walk away from the call that God has on your life. I don't want any of you to give in to the heartbeat of Judas and turn away from that which God has designed for you in ministry, that which he has designated for you, that calling that he has called you to, because when you are called by him, you can never walk the same. So what happened? I would argue he had integrity issues. He had no problem stealing money. We know that. But he also had no problem stealing glory. You see, Bombs were falling all around him, destroying his ministry potential because he lost a sense of integrity. Now, I want to I submit to you, I don't know exactly what was in Judas's heart, but I do think he probably loved Christ. I do think he probably believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but he had become so turned in his perception of who Christ was, had become so turned and in, in, in capable of justifying his own actions that he sought his own glory before he sought Christ's. He was in it for Judas, not in it for Christ. Could it be perhaps, and this is mere speculation, maybe he sought to destroy Christ. Maybe he thought that that he would be the next best thing if he destroyed Christ, or maybe, just maybe, he justified it and thought Jesus isn't moving fast enough. He's not going to kingship quick enough. You see, (laughs) let's back it up just a little bit. Jesus feeds the 5,000, the multitude seeks to make him king, and the Gospels tells us that, that when Jesus saw that they sought to make him king, he put the disciples in a boat and sent them out and across the waters before he sent away the multitude. Why? Because that was same desire that was in the multitude was in the hearts of James and Peter and John and Judas. They wanted to see their Savior as a king. They wanted to see their master as a king. They wanted to see him sitting on a throne. Did Judas not think maybe that perhaps if he pushed Jesus to the precipice, he would be the one that would get the glory? He would be the one, while James and John are fighting about sitting on the left and the right of Jesus, Judas is just plotting, and Judas is just designing a methodology to get him into that place of glory. Folks, you may say you wouldn't betray him. I might say I wouldn't betray him. But when we place our integrity on the auction block, there is nothing that we will not justify. You are perfectly comfortable stealing his glory. If you're perfectly comfortable stealing his glory, then guess what? The spirit of, of Judas is echoing in your soul. When you set to, to exalt your talents and your abilities above Jesus Christ, you position yourself as the enemy of God. Don't use his anointing as a cloak to seal his glory. It's time to wrestle with the voice of Judas in your heart, my friends. You may be talented. You may be capable. You may be eloquent in speech, and you may be, be talented in musically with singing and with, with instrumentation. But the fact of the matter is it's not about you getting the glory. It's not about you positioning yourself for grace and greatness or exalting yourself to a position of glory and adoration. It's about the King of Kings, and it's about the Lord of Lords, and the minute you start stealing the glory from the King of Kings, you have the heart of Judas. We have to wrestle with this. We have to wrestle with it. Is ministry about me or is it about God? Am I gonna rejoice while my friend is preaching general conference, or am I gonna become bitter because it's not me and try to elevate myself? Am I going to be angry because my friend got the solo on IBC Live and I didn't get the solo? Or am I going to say it's about him, not about me? Folks, the glory is not about me. It's not about you. If all you desire is to be in the limelight, then you have the spirit of Judas. And it's time for you to wrestle with those things that are in your heart. Furthermore, he spent so long defining Jesus, deciding who Jesus was, that he no longer recognized who he was. His manipulation and scheming completely separated him and disconnected him from the heart of God. We find that, as is the case, God doesn't allow us to make mistakes unchecked. And so conviction had to hit the heart of Judas we find that as conviction hit the heart of Judas he became harder and harder against the touch of God and as he became harder and harder against the touch of God it began to break down all that he was bombs falling on his heart and his mind destroying his understanding of Jesus's character he no longer trusted him he had no reverence for his identity or recognition of his covenantal love and so he argued that he knew better than Christ in his own pride. He argued that he could make it come to pass. He argued that, that the end would justify the means. My friends, the will of God is never going to remove you from the heart of God, and it's never going to remove you from the word of God. I can't tell you how many peers in ministry have looked me in the eyes or called me up or I've called them up and they've said, well, you know, I, I know people aren't going to understand why I'm doing this, but, but it's the will of God. Let me stop you right there. If it takes you away from this wonderful book, if it takes you away from his revelation, if it takes you away from essentiality, if it takes you away from the heart of God and you no longer are able to define him as he's defined himself, then guess what? It is not the will of God. It's your own pride. The glory of God, the anointing of God is not a toy to manipulate, it's not an idol to do our bidding. When you begin to view the will and the call of God as nothing more, the anointing of God is nothing more than something that you can manipulate. His character is going to become distorted. You're going to find his entrance into the room as being something that's embarrassing and repulsive. Yeah. Folks, can I, can I just say, I don't always have it all perfect, but guess what? If it would have turned into a shout down, that would have been absolutely fine. If the song service would have taken off and a spirit of prayer broke out in this place, it would have been absolutely fine because I want God to walk in the room and do what he desires to do. When we begin to see his presence as an interruption of our own well-laid plans, then guess what? We have the heart of Judas. Folks, it's time that we wrestle with these things. Folks, we don't know better than God. Judas argued that he knew better than God. Peter struggled to understand Jesus' role as a suffering serpent, so how could Judas have understood? He wasn't asked to understand. He was asked to submit. We don't always know. We don't always understand God's ways or God's methodologies, but we're asked to submit to him. The minute that we lift ourselves up in pride and argue that we know more than the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the the founder of the foundation of the earth, the beginning and the end— We are proving that we have the heart of Judas and that we've not wrestled with those things that will keep us from the call and from the will of God. We can argue that we would never backslide. You may argue that you would never backslide, but when is the last time you said, not my will, but your will be done? We talk about having mountain moving prayers. We talk about having prayers that will allow the chains of addiction and darkness to be broken. And yes, that's a wonderful thing. But can I tell you what the most powerful prayer you can ever pray is? It's simply not my will, but your will be done. I'm submitting my head, my heart, my actions, all that I am to you for your glory, for your kingdom, for all that you desire. God forbid we crave human affirmation more than heavenly confirmation that we're walking in covenant with God. What did Paul say? Do I now persuade men or God or do I seek to please men? For if I seek to please men, I'm lost. Friends, if Paul was prayed lest he become a castaway, then I don't think my heart's safe. I don't think your heart's safe unless it's consistently surrendered. That's why scripture tells us that we're not to be conformed to this world, but we're to be transformed. How? By the renewing of the mind. We're to offer ourselves up on the altar of sacrifice consistently for the kingdom of God. Because any time we aren't staying in covenant prayer with him, we may be walking with him we may be preaching the messages, we may see people come to a point of salvation, but if we're not walking with him daily in the quiet times of prayer, if we're not finding a prayer closet, if we're not spending time in this word, then guess what? We're going to become disconnected from the heart of God. And Satan is going to be able to speak things into our heart and into our mind, and we're not going to be able to distinguish between the words of God and the words of Satan. You see, once you begin down that path of justification, there is, there is, it becomes very difficult to turn back. To quote Susan Easton again, he says, the intoxication in the intoxication of youthful successes, I felt myself to be infallible and I was therefore cruel. In the serpent of power, I was a murderer and an oppressor. In my most evil moments, I was convinced that I'm doing good and I was well supplied with systematic arguments. You see, that's the thing we don't wanna face with Judas. We don't wanna face the fact that he was actively doing ministry and yet backslidden in his spirit. We don't wanna deal with the fact that, by the way, when we look at this passage, what happens? The disciples looked at one another, doubting of whom he spake. None of them questioned, none of them thought, none of them knew, because he had hidden it so well. He'd, he justified every one of his actions. He'd make sure, made sure, if, he, if you will, that they were codified in apostolic language. He made sure that the things that were too big remained hidden from view. The disciples were baffled. How could one of them betray Christ? They didn't recognize he had backslidden because, you see, he was never alienated from the faithful apostles. That's difficult for me to wrap my brain around. Proximity to ministry wasn't an indication of spirituality. I'm going to say that again. Proximity to ministry was not an indication of spirituality. No indication is ever made in Scripture that the miracles ceased, that the demons stopped playing, yet somewhere along the way Judas had backslidden. I think one of the greatest dangers, and I've told classes this time and again, that you can ever face in ministry, is to mistake the anointing God for his affirmation or his confirmation. Friends, he may anoint you to sing that song. He may anoint you to preach that message because there are people in that congregation that need to hear a word from God. But that doesn't mean your heart and your life are clean. Did Judas continue on in ministry thinking everything was peachy keen between him and God, justifying every one of his actions because God didn't strike him with lightning, because his sins didn't find him out? How many people persist in apostolic ministry while their hearts are completely, completely torn away from God? Their life is already in shambles. Their life is already rubble, but yet they continue on in ministry as though everything's okay and remain unsubmitted because the anointing oil is still flowing. Folks, the anointing oil isn't about making you feel like a superstar. The anointing oil is about being able to reach into the hearts and lives and minds of individuals and touch them with the gospel message. And God's long-suffering is not a guarantee that he will not respond. And his long suffering is not his stamp of approval on your life. His anointing is not his stamp of approval on your life. You can be anointed and be completely backslidden in spirit. You can be casting out devils and be completely backslidden in spirit. You can be preaching messages and people getting the Holy Ghost and be completely backslidden in your spirit. Folks, we have to wrestle daily with this Judas. We have to wrestle daily with our pride. We have to wrestle daily to maintain our integrity before the Lord. Because if we are going to turn this world upside down, if you're going to do what God has called you to do, if you're going to be called by him and never walk the same again, then guess what? You've got to be submitted. You've got to be malleable in his hands. You can't be a Judas who has disconnected himself from a relationship. Did the other apostles perhaps wink at his dishonesty because of his charisma? Was he the one that walked in and perhaps captivated a room? Was he the one that the the, the environment seemed to change when he walked in the room because he was such a gregarious, outgoing personality? Did the fact that the devil still fled when he invoked the name of Jesus cause the disciples to question what their own eyes had seen? Was he so talented that they missed out on his character flaws? There are two critical things to understand here. One is the fact that none of them saw, and two is the fact that because none of them saw, no one spoke to it. Now, don't mistake me. Don't misunderstand me. Jesus Christ, if Jesus, if he was unresponsive to Jesus Christ, he would not have been responsive to the other 11 disciples. But that being said, guess what? You may have peers in your life that would be receptive. I never want to be so far from relationship with God and relationship with others that someone can't stop me in my tracks and say, you know what? I need to speak death right now to to your actions. I need to speak death right now to the direction you're going. I don't want people just to be willing to speak life and affirmation into my heart and into my spirit. I want people to, to, to put it to me straight because I don't want to be a Judas. So you know what? I pray that there are people in my life that will push back if I ever make a mistake. That should be the prayer of every individual in here. And guess what? If somebody walks into your room, if somebody calls you up on the phone and yanks your chain, you need to be responsive to that. You need to be responsive to the voice of God because sometimes God used people to pull you back into alignment with him. If you're so unchecked in your spirit that you can't be submitted to anyone, you are in danger. You are in absolute and total danger. You have to be willing. What does that mean? It means that I'm submitted to leadership in my life. I have peers that are iron sharpeneth with iron that will reach out to me, and I'll reach out to them if there's ever a question, and they're willing to push back, and I'm willing to push back with them, but it also means that my prayer is that I'm sensitive so that I recognize if someone is on the cusp, so I recognize if perhaps someone is, is making bad decisions or their actions are betraying them so that perhaps God will give me the opportunity to speak into their lives. Friends, There is a whole host of men and women here who have a call of God in their lives. You have to be willing to be ministered to and to minister to others. And sometimes that means speaking life. Sometimes that means speaking affirmations. Sometimes that means giving somebody a pat on the back when they've done a great job. But sometimes it also means allowing people to speak into your life words of death or speaking words of death into other people's lives, to their actions, to their self-will, to their pride. We have to learn how to respond to correction because, again, anointing is not the same thing as God's approval. You know, I, I was just talking to one of my classes the other day, and it, it struck me in my last reading through the Psalms because it's so often I feel like, especially early on in the, the beginnings of ministry, your prayers, you know, God open the right door and God do this. And, you know, there's a little bit of pride in that, probably, I would argue that there is, and I would argue that God oftentimes takes you through that sifting process into, in, in order to work that pride out of you. But oftentimes your prayers, when you first have a call in the ministry, is God use me, but in the back of your mind it's use me so I can, everybody can see that I'm being used. <laughs> it's, a, it's a double-edged sword. But that being said, when I look at the Psalms, what do I see time and again, I see prayerful language. I don't see God use me, God open the right doors, God let me preach this message here, let me do this, let me get this solo. But what I see are words like, guard, are like, search me, know me, teach me your ways. Job, Job in his writing completely, completely invites the correction of God into his life and says, God, whatever you have to do to bring me into alignment, bring me into alignment. Folks, our prayers need to shift. If your prayers are still along the lines of look at me, your prayers need to shift and to search me, know me. I've said it before and I'll say it till the day I die. What does the the book of Proverbs say? Keep your heart with all diligence for out of our are the issues of life. Friends, as a young person tried to guard my heart. I tried to keep my heart with all diligence, but guess what I figured out really quickly? I can't do it because I don't know what makes me tick. I don't understand the, the pains or the situations or the emotions that may cause me to to be utter train wreck later on down the road. The things that are perhaps not sins, but will lead me away from the heart and the mind of God. And so what did I have to do? I had to say, God, I don't know myself, so you're gonna have to search me. You're gonna have to know me because my heart is desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? And I, I can't know my heart. That God, anything that will separate me from you, separate me from relationship with you, relationship with others, or relationship to this call, God, deal with it. Bring it to the surface, deal with it. Because more than anything else, I need you. More than my own glory, I need you. More than a pulpit to preach behind, I need you. More than a microphone to sing a solo, I need you. More than anything else, I want to reflect you, and I can't reflect you if I do not know you. I cannot reflect you if I have not been in your presence. I cannot reflect you if I don't know your holiness and your holiness isn't living within me. I need you to search me. I need you to know me. I need you to guard and to preserve my heart because I don't want to be looking at the wreckage of a life like Judas, not knowing what to do, so disconnected from the reality of who God is that I can't see any hope for a return. You see, the Bible tells us that he went out and it was night, (laughs) how obvious, right? They're eating dinner. I don't know anybody who eats dinner at nine o'clock in the morning. Now I've been known to have breakfast at nine o'clock at night, but uh, that's because I really like breakfast. Anybody really like breakfast? you a breakfast person? I can eat breakfast any time of day. I can do biscuits and gravy, omelet, and everything at night, but I, I can't say I've ever gotten up unless I was a teenager and slept in really late and had leftover pizza or something from the night before. I can't say I ever get up and I'm like, I'm going to do a Four course meal, we'll start out with a Caesar salad and a steak, move on to the baked potato. That's not, not how I typically get up. So the fact that uh, they're eating dinner, last supper, and it was night seems extremely redundant until you begin to recognize that John was saying a lot more than simply telling you the time of day. What was he saying? He was saying that Judas had made the decision to slam the door on the light of truth to slam the door on the light of the world. He was walking out not just into a dark evening, not just to a time when the moon was shining, but he was walking away from the light of the world and he was choosing in that moment eternal darkness. Why? Because Jesus didn't have grace and mercy for him? Absolutely not. He had grace and mercy for Peter. He had grace and mercy for Thomas. He had grace and mercy for the worst of sinners. He was walking away from Christ and there would be no return because of the condition of Judas' own heart. The condition of his heart pronounced his death sentence, and in hopelessness, he readily carried out it out. He had no hope in life or death. He no longer believed in the one that he claimed to follow. He no longer knew God's character. God's character remained unchanged. His love for Judas remained unchanged, but the longer he spent resisting submission, the more impossible it became for his heart to trust there was a place of restoration. See, that's the scary thing. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who said, I can just repent. I can just make it back. But guess what begins to happen? The more you silence submission, the more you silence the voice of God, the more you lose the reality of his character. And Satan begins to enter into the conversation and convince you there is no coming back from this one. Begins to convince you that, that all of the bombs that have fallen on your life, all of the, the rocks that have fallen, all of the, 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 the rubble that has, has persisted is too much for God to put back together that God can't do it. How many countless men and women have chosen spiritual death and alienation from the light, life, and the ministry that God has called them to to, in exchange for darkness and despair? Folks, I don't care if they've got a multi-million dollar church and they're preaching in front of huge congregations. I don't care if they have the recording contract. I don't care if they supposedly have all the ducks in a row and they're driving a million, living in a million dollar house and driving an expensive car. I will promise you that when they lay down their, eye, their heads to sleep at night, conviction is hitting their heart. I can promise you that when they lay down their, their, themselves on their pillow at night, sleep does not come quickly to their eyes. Because they begin to wrestle again with all of these decisions that they've made and the consequences. And that's when Satan begins to speak and say that there's no coming back. Would there have been redemption for Judas? I would argue absolutely If Jesus had enough love and compassion to cover the sins of all humanity, he definitely had enough love and compassion and blood to cover the sins of Judas. But Judas was so far divorced from the heart of God, he no longer understood the love that drove Jesus to Calvary. He didn't even wait to see what was going to transpire before he made the decision that would forever seal him in darkness. Friends, we have to wrestle with Judas in the present. While you're at Bible college, you have to wrestle with Judas. You have to ask God, analyze my heart. I want my heart to be clean. I want my heart to be right before you. I want to walk worthy of the calling in which you've called me. Not worthy enough to stand behind a pulpit. Anybody can stand behind a pulpit. Not worthy enough to sing a song. Anybody, regardless of whether or not they can even sing a scale or can sing on key, can technically sing. They can pick up a mic and sing. Not well. But it doesn't take anyone special. I've heard a lot of sermons that were terribly put together in my time. But the fact of the matter is, that's not what it's about. That's not what it's about. It's about fulfilling the call of God to reach into the hearts and lives of individuals with this changing transformative message. And friends, you cannot preach a transformative message unless you're consistently allowing it to transform you. Why was Paul able to stand up and say, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek, because he had had a Damascus Road experience, but he hadn't just had a Damascus Road experience. He died daily. He mortified the deeds of his flesh. He said, I'm gonna walk back in and I'm gonna crucify this flesh once again because I know that there is a transformative message and I cannot be transformed by the power of a message and then preach anything less than that message. So, you know, that begs the question in my mind, when people walk away from truth, when people seek their own glory instead of the glory of God, when they steal glory and refuse to wrestle with the little bit of Judas that may be in their heart, that begs the question, have they stopped allowing for transformation? Because, friends, as long as we are being transformed into the image of God and Christ is being formed in us, we can't abide to preach anything less than that message. We can't abide to sing anything less than that full gospel message because we recognize the transformative power and we recognize that the only hope this world has is a group of apostolic men and women who are willing to stand up on their feet, look Satan in the eye and say, guess what? I'm not gonna be another Judas. I'm not gonna die on the rubble of my own sins. I'm not gonna die on the rubble of my own pride. I'm not gonna die on the rubble of stealing glory away from God and bringing it to myself. I am gonna die out to this thing. I'm going to die out daily and I'm going to seek his glory and his glory alone because he alone is worthy of the glory, the honor, and the praise. You see, Judas walked out and it was night. September 2nd, 1945, marked the end of World War II. And we find, I'm not going to get into the all, all the history, um, although it would be fun, but the fact of the matter is we know that Nazi Germany was considered the epitome of evil. We recognize that they they sought to reach a point of ascendancy, world domination. Um, We know that they felt that they had been mistreated after World War I. They were forced to pay reparations to accept guilt for World War I. The Great Depression destroyed hope for the future as the U.S. was helping bankroll their rebuild and that money ceased to flow. And we find that on September 2nd, 1945, as all of the concentration camps, prisoners were freed, and the full atrocities that were World War II and the genocide against the Jewish people became well known. We find that for much of the world, the Nazis exemplified pure evil, that sought glory, that fought for ascendancy, for domination on the world stage. Their best and brightest conducted some of the worst atrocities ever recorded in human history, but ultimately they failed. And on September 3rd, at the end of the war, they were faced with the utter destruction that came in the wake of the decisions that they had made to embrace darkness and evil. And cities that were once glorious, that were once beautiful, that were once architectural uh, sites to behold, were now reduced to, to, to complete and total rubble. They were left with destruction, but no solution. So there stands in Germany today numerous hills or mountains, you might call them, called Trumerbergs or rubble hills. Sometimes they're called shard mountains because all the rubble that they had, they didn't know what to do with, so they just pushed it all together into massive hills or into mountains. And in some cities, like Schutberg, Germany, rubble hill is actually the highest point in the city. It bears a memorial sign that says, this mountain after World War II piled up from the runs of the city stands as a memorial to the victims and a reminder to the living. Friends, there is no glory in the runs. What happens when you resist submission to the God of truth? What happens when you resist giving God the glory and seek the glory for yourself? What happens when you resist submitting your pride and self-will to the King of kings and the Lord of lords? You're going to find yourself surrounded by complete and total rubble. And in that moment, you're not going to know what to do. Yes, there might have been that IBC solo on live, but don't let that be the height of your hill, and the rest of it just be the rubble of a broken life. You may have preached highlight and done an incredible job or preached incredibly on MSA, maybe gone on the mission field as an aim worker, but don't let that be the height and the apex of your ministry. And everything else just be the rubble pushed together of a broken life and a devastated existence and pride that you refuse to allow to be broken before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Friend, don't be a Judas. It's time for you to wrestle with these things. The high point of your ministry cannot be in the present. And then everything from this point on out. I don't want to look at any of you and go, man, he could really preach. Man, she could really preach when they were at IBC. But man, what happened? They're now a mess. I don't want to look at you and say, man, when they sang at IBC Live, the place went wild. But that be the full extent of your ministry. Friends. We need to get a hold of what ministry is because, you see, there's another part of this passage, and I'm hastening to a close, I promise. John 13 begins with the washing of the disciples' feet. And I always feel a specific heaviness when I teach or preach on this passage because we so oftentimes chalk it all up to humility. We so oftentimes chalk it all up to um, having servant leadership amongst one another. And that's fine. That's grand. That is a purpose of the passage, as, as it said. But what is so fascinating is all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. You can take this passage and lay it side by side with Philippians chapter 2. So when we begin reading this, in verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God. Philippians chapter two says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In other words, in both passages, Jesus knew exactly who he was. He was not gonna choose a path unsubmitted. He was not gonna choose to move in his own pride. He was not gonna repeat the sins of the first Adam and reach within the humanity, within the flesh for that which belonged to divinity alone. He knew where he came from. He knew where he was going. He riseth from the supper, laid aside his garments, And what does scripture say? But he made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant in Philippians chapter 2 and was made in the likeness of men. So he rose from the supper. He laid aside his garments. We could argue that in Philippians chapter 2, he laid aside his divine prerogative as royalty, as king of kings, lord of lords, as the creator of the universe in order to become true human flesh and bone, to become something he had not been previously. He was manifest in the flesh and he became man so that we could live Eternally with him, he took a towel and girded himself. So he, he robed himself in flesh and he became a servant. In this passage, he's literally becoming a servant at the feet of the disciples. After that, he poureth water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wash, wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Philippians chapter two, what does it say? And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." So what Jesus is doing in his final moments with, watch it, all 12 disciples, Judas included, let's go ahead and stand, is he's literally acting out both the incarnation and what is about to take place at the cross of Calvary, except he's not going to be washing their dirty feet. He's going to be pouring out of his very lifeblood in pain and agony and death in order to save their eternal souls. This is why he responds so strongly to Peter when Peter said, you're not going to wash my feet. What did he say? if I can't wash your feet, you have no part in me. In other words, if you can't take the humiliation in this moment of seeing me as a physical servant, you're not going to be able to understand when I become a servant for all of humanity and I give up my life's blood. You're not going to understand that my my crown is forged in blood. You're not going to understand when they stretch my arms and my feet on Calvary's hill. You're not going to understand that as opposed to the rubble hill that you would be without me. The rubble hill that the Trumerberg, if you will, that Judas had become, you're going to have hope eternal because I'm going to carry a cross up Golgotha's hill to Calvary. I'm going to carry a cross if the musicians can come up the hill of Calvary, and I'm going to teach you what it truly means to be a servant. You see, when he's called you to ministry, he hasn't called you to glory. He's called you to the same type of glory that he exemplified on Calvary. He's called you to take up your cross and follow him. He's called you to crucify the flesh. He's called you to transformation, to resurrect life in him. Friends, we can't afford to get this wrong. There's a world that needs to be won. There's a world that is dying and that is going to hell. There's a world that is hopeless without an apostolic voice, that is hopeless without the gospel message and without the truth of that message, that is hopeless unless we invite the glory of God down every time we get an opportunity to minister, whether it's to one person or 1,000. We can't afford to be a Judas who ends up with a rubble hill where there is no glory. But if I, if I am going to traverse a hill, it's going to be the hill of Golgotha. It's going to be me taking up my cross to follow Christ. It's going to be me saying it's not my will, but it's your will that I want to see accomplished. Folks, we have to surrender. We have to wrestle with this Judas. We have to wrestle with the self-will and self-pride because guess what? This world deserves it, but more than anything, he deserves it. He deserves all that we can give him because he is worthy of all glory and honor and praise because he didn't just take up a metaphorical cross. He didn't just choose the road less traveled or choose the straight and narrow path, but he chose the path of utter humiliation, of death, of degradation, of pain and, and of agony for you and for me. Friends, we have a father that has been willing to give us everything, even though we deserve absolutely nothing. And he is worthy of all glory and all honor and praise. So if with these meager lips, if with this meager life, I can offer up any glory to his name, that's what I desire to do. Is there someone in this place that will come down to the altar again and say, whatever it takes in life and ministry, I'm gonna wrestle with the Judases. I'm gonna wrestle with those sins. I'm gonna wrestle with those issues of pride. I'm gonna make sure that my heart is submitted before him because I don't want the ministry God's called me to be to do, to be just a pile of rubble that has no glory that has no effect that has no purpose i don't want to be just the villain in the story i don't want to be the one who walked away from god and betrayed him but i want to be made in his in his image i want to be created for his glory i want to give him all glory with all that i do every breath that i take every step that i take i want it to be aligned with god with his kingdom purpose, with his desires beating in my chest. I want my heart to beat to the rhythm of God's heart. I want my hands to move with his hands. I want to have love and compassion on this world like Christ would desire. Let's talk to him for, for a few minutes. Let's pour out our hearts before him once again. Let's make our calling and election sure. God, Lord, Let there be nothing, God, that would separate any of these young people from the call of God that you have on their lives, God. God. Lord, we can't afford to keep pride on life support, God. We can't afford to keep our self-will on life support, God. We want to give it all for the kingdom, God. We want to be sensitive, Lord, to your hand, sensitive to your touch, God, so that you can make us into your image, God. We want to be sensitive to the needs of others, God, and the ministries of others, both in our own life and in the way that we communicate to others, God. We want to live in covenant relationship with you, God. We want to give you glory, bring glory to your name and all that we endeavor to do with every breath that we take, with every beat of our heart, God. Come on, somebody needs to make a commitment right now. God's talking to somebody's heart. There's self-will, there's pride that he's bringing to the surface right now that needs to be dealt with. You need to wrestle with the Judas in your heart. God wants to make you a Peter. God wants to make you a world changer. He wants to make you a rock. But you've got to wrestle with the Judas. You have to wrestle with the pride. He's talking to your heart right now, God.